Hi, my name is Steve Williams. And I'm Clara Williams. We would like to welcome you to our new podcast, Voices from the Choir, Oh Happy Day Reflections. This podcast is about my journey growing up in the San Francisco, Oakland Bay Area, along with my cousin Diane, my childhood friends Kathy, Donald, Arva, Gwen, and Arva and Gwen's cousin Ron, and our time as members of the Edwin Hawkins Singers. We'll each share stories which began with singing in the Northern California State Youth Choir of the Church of God in Christ. Our incredible journey starts when we recorded an album that included the song, Oh Happy Day, which changed our lives. We've never shared these stories until now. Over the years of our marriage, Claire has always wanted to tell the story of this life-changing event. I'll be your host through these nine episodes as we hear from these voices from the choir. I'm so honored and blessed today to have the pleasure to sit down and have a conversation with my wife, Clara Hill Williams, advocate, former administrative law judge, litigator, mother, grandmother, and my life partner of 50 years. We're going to be talking about her special journey in 1969-1970, with the Northern California State Youth Choir of the Church of God in Christ and the Edwin Hawkins Singers. Also, we'll be talking about her experiences growing up in East Bay, Oakland, California, Richmond, and Berkeley. It's so great to have you today, Clara. Well, thank you, Steve, and thank you for taking this time to take me down memory lane. been a big part of my life in terms of just great memories. Give me a little bit about growing up in Oakland during that time. What was it like? How did you end up meeting all your friends that you ended up being in the Northern California State Youth Choir with? I met a lot of the people there that I had grown up with. My dad was a pastor of a small Pentecostal church, Church of God in Christ. And as a pastor of the Church of God in Christ, there were regions and districts and it was all divided up so the purpose of being divided up into regions or uh, I think in other churches may call it diocese but it's just also a form of fellowship it's a form of again having unity among those that believe in the same spiritual principles or same doctrines So my dad was not a full-time pastor in the sense that he was supported by the church. He had a day job, and the church was sort of a full-time, part-time job that he wasn't really paid for. He was given gifts and offerings, which he poured right back into the church. So, <laughs> and, and that scenario wasn't so atypical, right? No. A lot depended on the personality of who the pastor was. My dad had a full-time job, so that was enough to support us. So he, he really didn't need the offerings that he got from the church. And as I said, they just went back to the church, what he put back into it in terms of tithes and offerings. My dad really believed in his ministry and in his calling to faith. And prior to becoming a pastor, he was a lay minister at a larger church of God in Christ. It was Ephesians Church of God in Christ in Berkeley. And that's the church I remember growing up in from the time I was a toddler to, I believe, about 12 years old. And I have a lot of great memories because that church was sort of a prominent church in the Bay Area. It was a center point in Berkeley where a lot of the African-American community lived at that time. A lot of its members were from, and again, Oakland and Berkeley, they're neighboring cities, and Berkeley being a college town, but It's also right across the bay from San Francisco. And so there were also members at that church from San Francisco as well. So they had 
I can't in terms of numbers because I was so young at that time and everything seemed really big. But I knew there were at least 500 members there and I might be low ball in it, but at least 500. It was a fairly large church. Tell me about the neighborhood. Where did you actually grow up? I spent most of my childhood. I have faint memories of being in Richmond in sort of like a project type dwelling, multiple dwelling. I remember seeing cousins that I've grown up with there. And now that I think back on it, I think it was probably affordable housing. I then remember living in Berkeley. And I can just remember being on the porch, and I think it was around 9th Street in Berkeley. And it sort of makes sense because my dad worked for the city of Berkeley as a truck driver for the sanitation department, which makes me think about fences. And that was a good job. That was a job with benefits. And back during that time, I was born in 1951. So I can remember possibly in 1955, my dad worked for the city of Berkeley. So did several of his friends that all went to the same church too, that all went to Ephesians church too. And so I have great memories. And a lot of those friendships that I made then as a child, they, they of course, were my parents' friends as well. And we're still great friends. And a lot of those people were in the Edwin Hawkins Singers. So it's sort of like a family reunion. <laughs> you talk about the way they kept community while you were growing up. You mentioned to me about an organization your parents were involved in. What was that? Yes, yes. My mom and several other mothers at the church, they were pretty close within the same age, maybe a 10-year span. They formed a social club called the Crystalettes. And they named themselves the Crystalettes because one of the goals or mission of their organization was to have family fun and to keep the families together. So we went on picnics. I can remember going to Yosemite camping. I can remember just a New Year's Eve. They always had a New Year's Eve party that would start at a member's house. And then when it got really late, the children would have like the sleeping bags of cots and pallets around. Then when we woke up, we'd go to another member's house and have breakfast. And so it was just a great time. And even before the party, we, there was always a watch night service at the church. So this was a huge night because after the church, we drive to, and there were maybe about a dozen members in their club, the Crystalettes. And again, let me get back to that. They named themselves the Crystalettes because when they went to special outings out to dinner with just the adults, the mothers would put on crystals and crystal earrings. And they were pretty, This let's see, time-wise, I'm going to say between 1956 and through the 60s particularly the mid-60s, when they had a lot of their events. When I and my brother and sister, we were fairly young. I can remember towards the teenage years, they mostly had like camping trips. But early on, what they would do is, again, as I said, we lived right across the bay from San Francisco. And what they would do is organize an out-to-dinner event at a grotto in Fisherman's Wharf. And they would have one of the members call and make reservations for a group of 20, 24. They would pay for it in advance. Then on the event date, they would all show up there. And let's take us back to the time, although just in terms, they didn't have a sign that said, no colors or anything like that. So it was difficult to turn away a group of 24 people that had already paid for their meals. So <laughs> so that strategy came up how? Why was it decided that that was the best thing to do? They didn't want to be disappointed or disrespected if they came up there in a group and were refused and questioned. 
But the way they did it, their mills were already paid for. That's great. So I guess it was a real possibility that that could happen. Sure. That was always that possibility. So in a sense, that was their sort of silent protest. And so so now refuse us now. <laughs> and so and often there were members in the group, not my mom's background. Her family were sharecroppers in Texas and pretty much escaped. So she actually got to the Bay Area, uh, she and my dad, because of the war after World War II. And my mom, even during the war, worked. The family had migrated from Texas and ended up in Fresno, California, in the Valley. And during the war, my mom and her sisters, they got jobs at the shipyard. So that was an industry that was attracting African-Americans to the Bay, the Bay Area. But when we were members at Ephesians Church, some a lot of her friends had grown up in the Bay Area. My mom had finished eighth grade, but a lot of her friends had finished high school, and they were secretaries. Uh, my mom, mostly other than working in the shipyard, did domestic work. And a lot of her friends were either housewives or they were secretary, government secretaries and whatnot. And one of her good friends owned a daycare center in North Oakland, close to Berkeley, had a lot of her clients were professors at UC Berkeley. And my mom helped her out a lot. So their members could call and they may not be able to identify them as being African-American or whatever they knew the, just in terms of how to go about it and whatnot. I mean, this is the 50s, so it wasn't like eating in restaurants was foreign for them living in a cosmopolitan area. I love that story. I think it's great. It really illustrates how African-American families would come together and strategize about what they could do to overcome some of those obstacles that existed in the cities. They kept their families thriving, for sure, because they probably heard enough stories about people getting refused and getting turned away. Now, the Crystalettes were a group that existed outside of the church. They were just friends in the neighborhood. Well, because the church had different, I think it was Young Women's Christian Council and, you know, besides the Sunday school and all the other auxiliaries. But their generation, they were thinking like, that's nice. We all come to church. We can do other things and still be Christians. In the sense of the Pentecostal church, we could do other things and still be saved. We could go to nice restaurants. We can go camping. We can go skating, swimming. We can do a lot of things that don't always have to be associated with church. And so they were of that mindset, which is sort of set a precedent for me, just in terms of thinking outside the walls of the church, that Church of God in Christ no drinking, no smoking, no <laughs> all of these uh, things that you couldn't know. Oh, dancing was one of them. And I remember I used to often ask my mom, I was like, why is a Santa do everything? I mean, what's wrong with dancing? And she would say, well, frankly, I'm just afraid if this is when I was in high school, she said, you might go to a party if some, something may happen. And so it's not a safe space. And I mean, she allowed us to listen to non-Christian music, but although she sort of drew the line when it's, oh, my baby, you know, kind of blues, she said, oh, turn that blues off. But we could listen to, probably now, She, if it was the times now, she would probably even maybe be a little more restrictive because we were listening to mostly pop music at that time. And so we knew all of the Dick Clark and anything that came on Dick Clark was sanitized. <laughs> so You're a freshman or sophomore in high school. What was going on around that time? How did you hear about the Northern California State Youth Choir? How did people get in? Can you give us some sort of insight into that? Well, my high school was different because junior high went from seventh to ninth grade and high school went from 10th grade through 12th grade. I can clearly remember in 1966, I believe I was in the Northern California State Youth Choir. We heard about it. I think we went to a concert where the Northern California Youth Choir performed, and I had not heard them sing before. And I had heard that they had just gotten back from a youth convention where they sang, and they were upset because I think it was a competition, and 
they didn't place first. I didn't know the details, but all I knew was that they went on a trip out of state and they were a choir. And we were in that particular Northern California State Church District. And the Northern California State Church District had a youth department component. And once a year, they had a youth Congress. And basically, there would be music, young aspiring preachers would preach. But there wasn't a lot of activities, as I can recall. Then they had a National Youth Congress, and that was from the National Church of God in Christ. And that was pretty big, and that went to different states. And I believe that's where they had sang. They'd sang at the National Youth Congress for the Church of God in Christ. And so when they came back, they had a concert to promote, to get more members And we heard them, and we were just, oh, yes, this is something we want to be a part of. For one, it had well-known singers from the Bay Area that were heading that choir. It was Betty Watson, who was, I guess she was a young adult. She had to be at least in her 20s, maybe arching toward 30s, but at least her 20s then. She and her sisters, I think there were about four of them, and they ranged in age. Some were about my age and older, but they had recorded a group. They were good friends with Andre Crouch, and we all, I think a lot of people know Andre Crouch from The Color Purple. He wrote a lot of those songs. And so anyway, his father and grandfather held bishop positions in the Church of God in Christ. We knew who Andre Crouch was because he wrote this song. It's a classic song in Church of God in Christ and probably Baptist, Black Methodist churches, The Blood That Gives Me Strength, which is usually sang on Communion Sunday or at the Eucharist. We call usually call it Communion Sunday. So anyway, Betty Watson was connected with the Crouches and whatnot. And then there was also Ed Hawkins, who had become the choir director at Ephesians Church of God in Christ, where my family had been members when I was younger. And my dad had been one of the young lay preachers there at Ephesians. And my mom had been a part of the mom's social club, that's what I'll call it, the Crystalettes. So a lot of our friends were still at Ephesians. It was still kind of the go-to place for musicals or different events. So with those people involved, and then I recognized some of the teens in the choir were children of the Crystalettes, Ronald and Donald and their sister Benita, and then there were others that I knew from Ephesians. So this was perfect because this choir had people that I knew already, and it was an opportunity to do something outside of my dad's church that was, it looked like they were having fun. So let me ask, the Watson sisters were a part of Bay Area Gospel Royalty. Didn't they have their own group? The Watsons had recorded some years before, I would say at least five years before they recorded an album that was very well produced. Yes, so that had that recognition. So, And who were some of the other gospel groups that were prominent during that time? There weren't that many groups. I think Ephesians had a couple of groups, but they weren't as popular as the Watsons. The Watsons were known all over the Bay Area. I think Ephesians had one or two, like a male group called, I forgot what they were called, but they were sort of a copy off of Andre Crouch's The Disciples because The Disciples had recorded a record as well, and they had had a concert. This had to be in 67. It might have been even 65. And it was in San Jose at a Church of God in Christ. It was fairly nice-sized church in San Jose called Prayer Garden. And when we heard these songs, I mean, these songs we had never heard 
it seemed it was sort of pop, but it had kind of a soulful beat, and we went crazy. I mean, it was like the Beatles had come to town because we had never heard that in a church before, so that blew our minds. So Andre Crouch was gospel royalty in the Church of God in Christ. And there were also members in this choir that were from San Jose, the Prayer Garden, Church God in Christ, which had a pretty good gospel choir. So there were members from other well-known choirs that had good reputations that were in this group. Can you give me a little bit more information about Andre Crouch? Where was he based? Southern California. And the prominent groups... Andre was also involved with a female group called the Kojics, which is the initials from Church of God in Christ, but they were called the Kojics, and they had some great singers. Gloria Jones was in that choir, I believe. Blinky, other people that went on to be part of Motown's writing group or background singers, there were about four or five young ladies in that group and they were from Southern California. So at this musical where the, I think it was the Disciples, I think that was their name, Andre Crouch and the Disciples, and then the Kojics were there. And so it was a special presentation they had in Northern California and it was at Prayer Garden in San Jose. So that marked a change in the music style. And then so Ed sort of leaned in toward that style of music more. And you can hear that reflected in the music that we did on the Oh Happy Day album. Professionally, Andre was pretty popular and had started to perform a lot at the larger white evangelistic churches at the time. That was a little bit different than the gospel groups in the Kojic church. Was Andre outside of that? Andre had not left the Church of God in Christ, but they were a professional group, and you go where <laughs> you're being booked. And his songs were converted to sheet music. His records were in white music stores, Christian bookstores or church, you would find Andre Crouch. You go to any evangelical church and they used to know who Andre Crouch was and maybe not now, but if you went during that time, any time during the 60s, yes, they knew who Andre Crouch was. So he was performing to different audiences. He was performing on college campuses. I can recall when I went on to San Jose State. Now it's Cal State University, San Jose. But when I went there, he came at least three or four times while I was in college there. And it was part of a tour circuit. So he sang at other churches, colleges, a lot of different venues. He was sort of like what B.B. and C.C. Winans are now. But that was groundbreaking. Yes. It was really groundbreaking. Yes. Going back to the time when you were just coming into high school, the Northern California Choir was already formed, but you were just becoming aware of it. Yes, it was the California Youth Choir. And when I say Church of God in Christ, Northern California State Youth Choir, was because to become a part of it, you had to be a member of one of the church choirs. So what it was, so any church, and that's how the announcement went out. If you have young people at your church that are interested in joining this choir, they're welcome. Now the hitch, which had never happened before, the church choir, you didn't have to audition to be in the church choir. Everybody was invited. But for this choir, what made it even more special was that you had to audition. And so if Ed sort of knew you sang or kind of have heard you, you'd been around, yeah, he took you to a few runs and you were in. Ed and Betty did the auditioning. And so by that time, being at my dad's church, my brother and sister and I, we were the core at the church because we had a choir, but we were it. And so we can give you a concert. <laughs> and my brother, as I, I mentioned before, he had the reputation of singing, and so everybody knew he sang. So often we would back him up if we sang anywhere. So they knew we could sing, we could hold notes. And so it was, you're in, kind of thing. But a couple of my other friends auditioned but didn't make it. 
you told me about the pastor that was responsible for the youth choirs in the Northern California district and that he had come back from a convention that he wasn't really satisfied about the performance and wanted to put together something that was really of quality. Tell me a little bit about that. That was Elder Johnson. He was the youth director of the youth department from our region in California. So he was that person. He organized, he thought it was a good idea. It was his idea to form a youth choir and to participate in the national events because he was representing our state to the youth congresses. And he was like, well, what are we bringing? So that was his impetus to form the youth choir. And he took leaders from different churches to form that choir. And so the choir was composed of over a dozen churches in the Bay Area. And our church was Richmond. It was a smaller church. And then we would recommend people that, like, so we recommended the rest of our cousins. <laughs> you know, that all sang in our choir. We recommended them. And then we also recommended Dorothy Morrison, who was the lead singer on Oh Happy Day, because she was a member of our church. And she sang her family saying, just like the Watsons, they were known in Richmond and other places, and they had a very almost staple singers-like type of sound. But they were known in the Bay Area as well. So we figured they're looking for choir members. You're a great lead. Come on. And so we told our aunt, who lived in Fresno, uh, (laughs) but she was coming, you know, she was coming to the Bay Area a lot, and we are like... It's a good thing. We're going to the Youth Congress, and I think it was going to be in Philadelphia. That's what we were planning. And I believe we recorded the record. It had to be in either 66 or 67. The convention we were working toward, because I don't even think they had it every year. It might have been an every other year kind of thing, because I know it was the summer of 69, that we were gearing up for. We recorded the record as a fundraiser. As a fundraiser for what? That's an expensive trip to take. We had about 40 in the choir. So this was our hotel, bus accommodations, food. It was gonna take care of our expenses. Once you got into the choir, uh, what did it require of everybody? Um, how often did you rehearse, and how did you work that out with your schedules? You guys were in high school and were busy already, so how did you fit it in? Right. We usually rehearsed on Monday nights, and if we sang on the weekends, generally Saturday was the best time, or maybe Sunday afternoon, Sunday early evenings. We had a lot of engagements. Initially, we mostly sang at church, at a lot of Church of God in Christ events. So in Fresno, we would sing, you know, around the Bay Area, San Francisco. That's where all of our churches were. So if there was any special event going on with the state, like the state convocation that they had every year, usually it was in June, we would sing there. But more and more, we started getting invitations to sing at other churches, other denominations. I can recall singing at an Episcopal church, and I can only say that now because I've attended an Episcopal church. So I've seen how it's laid out, and I can remember singing in a couple of churches like that. But we sang at fashion shows, fairs, different events. Where did the choir rehearse during that time? Rehearsals were at Elder Johnson's church. It was in East Oakland, somewhere in East Oakland. Later, we started rehearsing at a school. I can't recall the name of the school, but it was a school in Oakland. Once rehearsals started and people got into it, uh, was there an excitement? Uh, Did people feel that this could really be something special that they were doing? It was always fun because we all could hear we we sang very well. We sound good <laughs> so by our own standards. So not to be cocky, but we could hear. We sound good. When, from the response that we got from audiences, because we were singing a lot. And by now, 
things had sort of closed down. A lot of people weren't able to even audition because we had everything we needed. <laughs> so we had all the altos, basses, tenors, sopranos, seconds. We had leads. Then it became, this was really special. We knew we sound good. We love rehearsing. We love the music. And we love getting together. Mondays were a highlight. Who were the soloists? And, and who were some of the soloists that were a part of it? The soloists, and this was generally, if you were a pretty good lead at your church and your church was fairly well known, you were probably going to be asked to sing a duet, trio, or sing a lead. So it came through recommendations to things or certain types of songs that Ed had arranged. He had singers in mind. For instance, uh, Joy Joy, he had Tremaine because she had a strong second soprano voice. And Ruth Lyons, she had a first soprano range and that complemented Tremaine's voice. Betty Watson usually sang the really rough and tough gospel, stomping gospel, because that's the brand that she and her sisters sang. And she brought a couple of those songs. One song was Early in the Morning. And she, Betty Watson had a style like Claire Ward, where she could prance up and down. The, she was a show person. That's how they sang. And these were pretty. They looked like not the Supremes, but the Ronettes. You know, the Ronettes, they, were that, they sort of favor that kind of group. So they were all very pretty. But then they would just break out in these songs and everybody, yeah, it would just wow everybody. So she sang early in the mornings, those types of songs. And then, Oh Happy Day, at first it was sort of a, because it has a, a low part and then a higher part. And so he was thinking of Mel and the lady. And we're like, oh no, that's Dorothy Morrison. And she, of course, she was from our church. And we knew because she sang at our church, her family sang, and we knew she had that kind of range. And Oh Happy Day was not his prize song because it was a hymn that he just, most of the songs were rearrangements from some other music that Ed had heard. Footprints of Jesus was Autumn Leaves. And I didn't know Autumn Leaves, but yeah, it was a <laughs> it was a classical song, Autumn Leaves. Yep, that's it. <laughs> and so that wasn't on the first record because we couldn't get it released to change the words. But that was a favorite. And there were other songs that we sang. It sort of had a Sergio Mendez kind of a calypso. The songs were sort of like that. So it was a very soothing as gospel songs and trending toward the newer sounds of gospel music. But Oh Happy Day was sort of a little, little I mean, it, was, it had a hymn. It was very simple. It was very easy. But it was the dynamics that had the range. But that wasn't the one that he thought would be the number one that would move the album to sell. So it was a total surprise. So we all, and I remember when the record was, popularity was picking up. And when I say popularity, I'm talking about hand-to-hand sales. <laughs> we weren't on the, you know, we weren't on the radio. We might have been on the gospel local radio station. We weren't on nothing popular. This is basically selling records at your church and out of the trunk of your car and everybody you knew to buy, like selling Girl Scout cookies. But when we had our concerts, people would request songs and, oh, happy day, oh, happy day. So it became one of our definitely included in our concert list of songs to sing. But again, it wasn't one of, I mean, sure, he loved all the songs, but the one that he really thought would move the album, Oh Happy Day, wasn't the one. And what were some of the favorites? I was glad when they said unto me, in fact, I think that's the name of the first, of the album before it was reprinted. I think it was Let Us Go Into the House of the Lord, which is sort of a an anthem hymn, sort of songs. Then there was, I'd almost have to see the record label to pick out what the songs that he felt were the ones that were moving the sales of the record. And this was before things, and now we use the term viral, but before it got picked up by mainstream. And our goal was we weren't trying to make a record to go mainstream. We were trying to make a record to help finance 
our trip to the National Youth Congress in the summer of 1969. During that time, uh, what was going on just in your life? What other challenges? Because it was a lot. You were working at Defermery Park. You had been playing the cello when you got into high school, and you had your church activities, and now the Northern California State Youth Choir. Well, the cello, that was at school, so it was kind of, everything was compartmentalized. I played the cello at school. We played school assemblies. All the rehearsals were at school during school time, except we did, it was 7.30, so it was an extra period, so this was going there an hour earlier. I loved that music, but it didn't interfere with anything else that was going on in my life. Before I started working after school at the park, I believe that really started when I was in high school. I don't remember rushing home to go work at the park when I was in junior high or middle school. So by the time I got to 10th grade, I believe it was in 10th grade, again, my job at the Fermi Park was... I know I at least got out of school by three, and I, my job was from four to six, something like that, but by the time, just enough at dusk, I would live two blocks from my house to get home. Yeah, it was fine. It cut down the job after school, cut down on any extracurricular activities after high school. I love theater, as I said before, but any of the plays that weren't done as class skits or class plays, any the the plays that were performed by the school theater department, they had a pretty, I mean, this was Berkeley High, they had a pretty decent theater department. Actually, it was very good. That required a lot of after-school time. And so I think I did one, but it was sort of a class production when I was in high school. But other than that, that's a sacrifice, and it was interesting when, with my own children, I didn't want them to have part-time jobs during school time, and because I regretted that even though with the part-time job it gave me extra money, I was saving to buy a car. <laughs> and uh, it was a car that was a friend of my mom's, and her husband was a mechanic, and he said, I have this car here, but he didn't want to give it to me. He said she should earn it. So I can't remember how much he charged, but I saved up the money and bought it. So that was a goal for me, which turned out well, because by the time the Hawkins singer and, well, the Northern California Youth Choir, I had my own car so I could go to rehearsals <laughs> I just drive to the rehearsals. My mom didn't have to take me. So it really turned out, I didn't know then, but it turned out to be a great blessing for me. And what was going on with your mom during that time? Because wasn't there some challenges at home? Well, my mom had always had heart problems. And uh, a certain time of the year, her lungs would fill with fluid, and she would have to go to the hospital and work on it. So as she was getting older, it was more and more frequently. I can recall I was about 14, and every year the Church of God in Christ's National Convention is in Memphis. And actually that is the church that Martin Luther King he was at the Church of God in Christ Temple, the Mason Temple. That's where they had their annual Church of God in Christ conventions. And so it was a big deal for anybody to go to the national convention. That's where they elected the bishops or whatever officers was going on. And it was also vacation time, and they descend on Memphis. So it's like I, I can compare it to going to the NAB or, or the any sort of national kind of conventions they have in Vegas right now. So this was every year in Memphis, Tennessee. And so my mom, she had gone before this one particular year that she went. When she came back, she got really, really sick. And the doctor was saying, I don't know how long your heart's going to hold up. And I can recall my aunt, Liz, she lived in Los Angeles, and she was one of my mom's younger sisters, but she visited quite often. My mom, in fact, a lot of my mom's younger sisters and brothers always 
found refuge in our house. <laughs> this is about all of them stayed there for a short period of time or visited often. But my mom was the older sister, was welcoming and whatnot. And she'd tell them what she thought. If they wanted an opinion, she'd tell it to them whether they wanted it or not. And so my Liz was... She would come down quite often because she loved going to anything that was a convention or anything that was going on. She was there for it. So anyway, I can recall she came from L.A. I don't think she came specifically to see my mom, but that's where she stayed when she came. And so it was a Saturday and, you know, I knew what the routine, do the chores and before we could go out and do whatever we had planned for our day. And so it was a typical teenager she had asked me to do something. I said, I, I'm going to do it. I, I'm going to get it done. Okay. And then my aunt, she pulled me aside and she said, do you know your mom's really sick? I said, well, yeah, you know, I know she's had heart problems that she's been dealing with. And she said, do you know she almost died? And I said, well, I know that your heart stops beating, that it could, you know. And she says, no. She says, her health is not good. And she said, whatever you can do, don't make her have to beg you to, to do stuff because she can't do it or she else she'd get up and do it. She can't do it. She doesn't have it. And you know that by now. You know what she physically cannot do. So don't make her have to ask and beg you to do things. Try to take that off of her. And it just touched me. I started crying. And I was like, wow, that's really true. So from that day on, anything that needed to be done in the house, I didn't care who should have done it. I just did it. I did it. We had our weeks to wash the dishes and whatnot. If it was somebody else's, I'd just clean up the kitchen. and just Whatever it was, I just did it. I'm glad I did because when she passed away, I felt like, you know what? I did my part to try to extend her life. And then there was a period of time when she had the surgery. I believe I was in the 10th and 11th grade when she had the surgery. And it was at Stanford. And it was a big deal because I think this was one of the first bypass surgeries that had been performed. And the doctor, he met with us and he was a Christian. And he just said, this is something that if it works, it'll be like she has a new life. And he says, but I don't know how long it will last. It could last for many years or it may not last that long. And she may not make it through the surgery. For weeks, she seemed plugged up to tubes. She couldn't talk to her. And I, my prayer was like, God, if I can just talk to her without the tubes. And if she only lived a day, that'll be fine with me. And so over the period of time, she finally came around. They were able to disconnect all the tubes. It was successful surgery. She came home. She was able to walk downtown. <laughs> she was able to do so many things that she had never been able to do. And she lived about six months. And this one Saturday, she wasn't feeling too well. That was her last day. but So I sort of had that, in a sense, sure, any time your parent passes away. But I felt that God had prepared me or that I was prepared. And she always used to say that, God, just let me live until my baby is grown up. And then she would say, you're grown up too fast. <laughs> and I didn't quite get the connection until later on. But she just said, I'm not worried about you. I know you will be fine. Of course, we never had the chance to take have that talk. But just by the, the things that she said, I knew she was proud of what we were doing. We had recorded the record. So you think that was 66 or 67? It could have been 67 that we recorded. I'm now, now more and more, I'm thinking it was 67. Because by 68, she passed away in 68. And by 68, the record was out. She came to our concert when we had the record and we were selling the record. She came to a couple of our concerts. So she knew that we were planning to go on the trip. And, and so she knew we loved singing in that choir. She knew that was special. Can you name the other members of your family that were part of the choir at that time? My aunt, Virginia, 
and she married Fred, Fred Edwards. So she was Virginia Pickens, married Fred Edwards. Charlene, my sister, my brother Lawrence, my cousin Cecilia, my cousin Diane was in the group. I believe that was it. What about your dad? My dad. Because how many chaperones were there? There were two. My dad and Cornelius Casimir. They were the Crystalette dads. And the Crystalette children that went on the tour were myself and my brother, Lawrence, and my sister, Charlene. The Casimirs were Ronald and Benita, who was 15 at the time. And then there was also Arva Lee and her sister, Gwen Lee, who was 16 at the time. No wonder everyone felt so comfortable. And what was interesting, a good example, was when we were in D.C. and we met these brothers from Howard and they wanted to give us a party, invite all their fraternity brothers to the party. Who could we invite from the choir? And we're like, oh, so we, <laughs> you know, we had fun. So we only invited the people that we thought were cool. <laughs> and so I don't know if my dad was there or checked it out or he knew whatever, but we went through the protocol so I could work around because there were some members that were trying to be den mothers or your mother or something that, you know, I just went around them and went to my dad. So that was a good thing. People were creating their own albums and designing album covers. They would take them to a local pressing plant and, and then take delivery of the actual units. So it wasn't really unusual at that time, was it? And this was akin to a high school choir recording themselves and selling the records as a fundraiser. In fact, the person that recorded us, I believe his name was Lamont Bench, he recorded high school choirs. And Ed felt that he wanted the recording to reflect a choir sound and that Lamont Bench could get that choir sound because he had experience in recording high school choirs. And so we selected Ephesian Church, which was one of the churches within our Northern California state. We felt that that church had a good acoustics. They had rebuilt Ephesian Church from the time of the, that we had been members there when I was a kid, but it had good acoustics. And so we decided to record the live album there. We advertised that we were recording a live album. And also in preparation for the album, we decided that on the day of the recording that as many of the choir members that could would fast in some form or another. And with the idea that when we sang, that the Holy Spirit would be there and that that would be reflected in the recording so that any person that later heard the album would feel that energy that we had that evening. And I tell you, it was pretty amazing. That was the first time, I mean, at my church, we believe in fasting. Of course, a lot of people of different, all different faiths fast, so that's not unusual. But when you have a group of people and it's all motivated for the same purpose, it's pretty powerful. And so we experienced that during the recording, the live recording. And we went pretty much straight through our concert songs. I don't remember doing too many retakes. <laughs> so it was like a live concert. And sure enough, when the albums were pressed and we received it and we listened to it, we could hear that. The live recording was like a concert. We dressed in our concert attire and we took photos there at the church and I believe it was on the back of the album. So the feel was, and we wanted it to be like a live concert. So you heard a little bit of that, but it was still, you heard the choir and the lead vocals and the instruments that accompanied the choir on a couple of songs you could hear, tamarines. So it was, the recording was like a live concert. 
interesting about that because in contrast to Aretha Franklin's Amazing Grace album, which was a different kind of choir recording, uh, with Retha being the focal point of it. But that was a much different experience in the Northern California Youth Choir concert and, and recording. How do you explain that? Uh, what do you say about the differences in the styles? Well, one of the things in Aretha's recording, which having recently seen at least the TV version, and oh, actually seeing the live recording too, she wanted it to mirror a church service, whereas we wanted it to mirror our concert. So at our concert, we would be doing the singing. There wasn't any preaching going on, but there would be singing. So it wasn't so much that we were trying to capture the audience reaction. Also, that recording was, it was a record, but then it, it was also a video recording and ours was strictly a record recording. And so we had a budget, <laughs> you know, we had a certain amount of money and we wanted to make sure we were able to cover all these songs completely. So the focus was on the choir. So the recording took place over one evening to capture the whole album. It was one night. I believe we probably started around 6.30 or 7. We had prayer before. I can't recall how long our fast was, but back in those days, I didn't eat that much anyway. So I can't remember singing and being hungry. And everyone, like I said, whether they fasted a portion of the day, no one, but we just knew at some point that everyone in the group, and this is some 40 people engaged in fasting and prayer, that this recording would connect with people that heard it anywhere in the world. And it's interesting that at that time, our goal, again, was to raise money to go to the National Youth Congress. But at the same time, we were praying that anyone that heard that album would be touched. And we found that to be true. And later on, we were touring different places. I can recall even 10 years ago, one of my supervisors found out that I was in the old Happy Day Choir. And he says, every time I heard that record, I would just get chills. And I was thinking, yes, that's, and I told him that we all committed to fast that day and that people would feel what we felt when we recorded. And we were just happy that it did emote that feeling that the live recording, we felt that. And so we were happy about that. So it was more than a performance. It really was a ministering experience. I mean, it was very touching for everybody, all the choir members, also a personal experience, but it was also a testimony that you wanted people to receive. Exactly, yes. It was something that when I look at the songs, the songs spoke to your heart. So it was ministry. I mean, it was, I'm going through. Joy comes in the morning. It was, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. It was all these songs of praise that was easy to connect. They were joyful songs and overcoming songs. And so, it, which was pretty much our ministry. So all those songs on that recording reflected what we were trying to say. Clara, I really enjoyed this conversation. You've shared so many stories with us about the beginning of your choir experience. But there's so much more to hear about on the release of the album and your time performing on the road. We're going to continue the conversation on part two of Voices from the Choir, Oh Happy Day Reflections. This episode was produced and edited by Stephen Clara Williams for Kite Flyer Productions. Listen and follow for free wherever you listen to podcasts.